Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 124, Gold Bugs. 1931 was the real breakout year for the Great Depression. Up to around the middle of that year, the economic crisis was mostly confined to the United States. And while it was certainly devastating, it was also in line with economic downturns of years past. In 1931, though, the Depression went global, spreading all around the world economy, and especially in Europe, upending the status quo. This breakdown abroad doubled back to the United States and deepened what had been a recession into a full-blown depression. But what caused all this misery to spread outside the United States? The most commonly cited culprit is the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, passed in June 1930. During the initial downturn, the U.S. Congress decided to implement good old-fashioned protectionism and championed higher tariffs on tens of thousands of imports. This would simultaneously raise money by charging higher duties on imports and encourage buyers to look towards the American market for goods first. This would limit how much the U.S. bought from foreign countries, thus hurting their economies. For his part, President Hoover opposed the measure, as did many economists and businessmen. Champions of free trade never liked tariffs as it provided barriers to unrestricted commerce. Plus, it would surely provoke a reaction from foreign governments as they would raise tariffs of their own to protect their own economies, which is exactly what happened. This also helped set the tone of the response because at an early phase of the crisis, the United States demonstrated that it would first and foremost be looking out for number one. Hoover might have opposed legislation, but it enjoyed enough support from his own party that he didn't want to risk alienating his allies in Congress and signed off on the tariffs. Now, the issue of tariffs was certainly one that made the Depression worse. Once the U.S. got going with them, so did everybody else, and before long, everybody was working at cross-purposes trying to defend their own economies by themselves, with the idea of collective economic action being abandoned early on. But the tariffs probably weren't the decisive reason why the Depression got so large. They merely deepened what was already going to be a gigantic crisis. For example, while the Smoot-Hawley tariffs saw a significant increase in costs of imports to the U.S., a similar piece of tariff legislation had been passed in the early 20s to no disastrous effect at that time. No, the real problem was the gold standard. I touched on the gold standard way, way back in episode 20. The concept is simple. Alarmingly so to modern listeners, maybe. It was an economic policy where a government that elected to be on the standard made a certain promise with regard to its gold reserves and how much printed money it allowed to exist. Once upon a time, paper money really was just a stand-in for an equivalent amount of precious metal. The paper itself was, well, it was just paper. What gave it value was the ability to convert it over to a precious metal that had real perceived value. And yes, I know that putting inherent value in things like gold and silver is itself an arbitrary decision, but this is the thought process, especially back then. Under the standard, a nation guaranteed that for every unit of its currency, it could guarantee that it could be converted to a set amount of gold. This would basically make inflation a non-issue, as governments could only print so much money, as every bit of paper floating out there could be turned into gold. For example, the rule in the U.S. was that gold reserves had to cover at least 40% of the value of however much printed money was floating around at any given time. This did not mean that any given nation's money supply was entirely static, as governments could acquire more gold and therefore be able to put more of their currency out into the world. 
I mentioned back in episode 44, one of the reasons why the UK went through so much trouble trying to keep the South Africans happy was because they possessed some of the most productive gold mines on the planet. More gold coming out of the ground and then purchased by the Bank of England meant that more pounds could be printed out. This was not a scenario enjoyed by most nations, though, as the average country on the standard didn't have gigantic gold mines. The inverse situation was also applicable. If, say, you had a pile of British pounds, you could convert them into gold and then have that gold shipped elsewhere to be converted into another currency, which would decrease gold reserves in the original nation and then increase them in another. It was a zero-sum game. Either you had the gold or you didn't. And that's exactly where the trouble started. And the fact that this was going to turn into a general crisis of the gold standard system was especially bad, because pretty much every developed economy was plugged into it. It had actually been the, uh, well, it was the standard before World War I, but was suspended across the world as spending limits were incompatible with funding war efforts. The 20s, though, were a decade where elites tried to turn the clock back, and the standard was part of this mentality. This was the dream of the past decade of economic policymakers. With everybody's monetary policy following the same rulebook, the playing field was on the surface evened out. There would be no tricks of deprecating one's currency to make exports more appealing. Plus, some nations like France, and especially Italy, saw having a stable currency as a point of pride and success, compared to the wild inflation days of the early 20s. Germany, obviously, was very sensitive to inflation, and saw the standard as an important curb towards preventing a repeat of the catastrophe of 1923. The UK had been so dead set on re-implementing the standard in the mid-20s that they basically sent their economy into a lingering recession years before 1929. The standard was something that countries had fought for in order to establish some stability in what had proven to be a chaotic decade. Unfortunately, the 30s were only going to get more chaotic, and conditions in Europe since the Great Depression had started in America had themselves only gotten worse. There were a myriad of problems in Europe, and for those of you who listened through Season 1, you're well acquainted with them. The industrial recovery after World War I was sluggish. The collapse in prices for agricultural products that was so devastating in America was if anything, more devastating in a continent of small, usually non-modernized farms, and economic growth was largely driven by foreign loans. That last bit is what I'm going to zero in on for a moment, because when I say foreign loans, I mean American ones. And last week, I focused very hard on just how terribly American banks were doing. In 1928, firms in the U.S. provided $1.7 billion in loans across Europe. Germany was a big customer, but really, loans were doled out all over the continent. In 1929, this dropped to $1 billion as banks became more conservative. In 1930, this dropped still more to only a half billion. This was partly due to liquidity constraints among U.S. banks, and partly because American lenders actually started taking a look at what they were loaning for and not liking the answers. Oftentimes, the money being sent over to Europe was going to national and local governments to provide funding for their normal operations. Okay, that's fair. But the problem the Americans noticed was that the money was basically being used to keep the lights on in those scenarios. There wasn't significant progress towards expanding economies in order to raise money to actually, you know, pay back the loans. Even loans made to private firms weren't used properly, and while capitalists in Bohemia and Berlin lived the high life for a few years, 
their actual commercial results were paltry. Industrial output didn't significantly increase, and even with the loan money floating around, the average European was a poor consumer of goods compared to their American counterparts. This created a crisis of confidence among American lenders. Germany had notably started trying to wean itself off of foreign credit as early as 1928, but proved unready for the American banks stepping back from offering long-term loans. There simply wasn't an alternative source of money to fund the government. With the loss of American credit, countries all over Europe began to see economic declines even before October 1929. The hardest-hit nations were the myriad of countries in Central Europe, again, especially Germany. Confidence in all these nations was badly shaken, and with economic prospects dimming, the business class all over America and Europe began converting their holdings of foreign currencies in declining countries and transferring them into gold. Then they began taking those stocks of gold and shipping them abroad to institutions they deemed to be more solid. Oddly enough, the most popular destination was the U.S., which may seem counterintuitive given the disaster unfolding there, but those with a lot of money saw America as a better long-term prospect than, say, Germany, Hungary, Poland, or Austria. Those nations looked to be in trouble for a long time to come. The other notable destination for gold was France, which successfully delayed the depression there for a few years, something I'll be covering in an upcoming episode. Now, the presence of increased stores of gold in one country at the expense of others was supposed to be self-correcting under the gold standard. With more gold, say, in the U.S. or in France, the money supply could be expanded, causing a rise in prices as businesses adapted to the inflation. This would make domestic goods from those places less appealing and turn buyers towards foreign suppliers. Foreign suppliers would want to be paid in their own currencies, which would then be acquired ultimately by some use of the domestic gold supply, thus over time leveling out the disparity. The thing is, though, it didn't play out this way. Proponents of the gold standard didn't reckon with governments issuing bonds that were purchased with the gold being transferred into the new country, bonds being financial instruments where government sells the bond at a set price to be paid back for a higher amount later, basically an IOU with a thank you payout at the end. If the gold coming into a country was used to purchase bonds, then the earlier process I described would be disrupted. Bonds, despite being as good as money when the government issuing them was rock solid, aren't actually money. It's the promise of money sometime in the future, which has value, but the Venn diagram isn't a perfect circle between the two. Gold used to purchase a bond meant that it would come into the possession of the buying government, but wouldn't lead to an increase in the money supply. No increased money supply means that prices wouldn't increase, which meant that foreign goods would not become cheaper for purchase. The buying country's money supply would stay the same, but the country where the gold was coming from would see its own money supply shrink, lessening the capacity for economic activity. Aside from France, Europe entered a general recession as prices decreased, borrowing became prohibitively expensive, and interest rates were jacked up so as to limit how much domestic currency could be floating around to buy gold and then sent abroad. This created an unworkable situation for most nations, notably the UK. Their unemployment rate was already at 20% in the early 30s. They simply couldn't afford more deflation and a corresponding decline in the economy. The British spent the summer of 1931 trying to secure foreign loans to make up the difference of gold escaping the country. But there simply wasn't enough credit out there, with the Americans unwilling to lend the amounts the British were looking for, and the French only willing to go so far as what the Americans were willing to do. 
On September 21, 1931, the British government made the choice to go off the gold standard, allowing the value of its currency to weaken as it was no longer backed by gold, which it did, losing 25% of its value in mere days and overall 30% by year's end. This was quite the turnaround, as I mentioned previously that the UK sent themselves into a long-term recession just to get back onto the standard. But it was the right decision, as now the UK became far more competitive with its exports. And it paid quick dividends. What had been an economy stuck in a morass for the better part of a decade suddenly started posting reliable and steady growth all through the 30s, which I'll get into more detail when I turn my focus onto the UK in a couple of weeks. In five years, industrial output rose by almost 50%, and unemployment was more than halved. The only thing that slowed the recovery down was initially in the fall of 1931, when the Bank of England held off on expanding the money supply for fear of making the initial shock of deprecation of the pound's value all the worse. But when that didn't materialize, they were off to the races. So while the recovery proper only started in early 1932 for them, it was a solid one. Japan followed the UK's lead, and in December 1931, they too exited the gold standard. For Japan, which had also suffered through the doldrums in the 20s, the move worked out brilliantly. Japan only saw an economic contraction of 10% during the crisis, and after leaving the standard, showed no hesitation in expanding the money supply, and the economy recovered in short order. A uh, little caveat that's going to be very important for episodes in the not-too-distant future, a lot of that monetary expansion was in the form of the government pumping money into the armaments industry, which was necessary because Japan invaded the Chinese region of Manchuria on September 18, 1931, which was great timing for them, as just as the world was descending into a catastrophe, Japan's militarism was starting to be unleashed. While the invasion would be concluded on paper by February 1932, the military would be occupied there for years to come, and would of course only be the start of ground operations in China for the Japanese. The financial flexibility of leaving the standard was well appreciated by the Japanese government, as the demands of the military would spurn industrial expansion on a large scale. The happy news in Britain and Japan was not repeated elsewhere, though, and events came to a head when the Credit Anstalt, Austria's premier bank, collapsed in May 1931. The story was that Austria's economy could never quite pull itself together, and many smaller banks failed. And when they failed, the Credit Anstalt Bank moved to buy them and their debts up. It got to be where that single bank held 60% of the debt in Austria's industrial sector. Uh, just to give you an idea of how big a part of Austria's economy it was. A problem occurred when it was discovered by auditors that one of the larger banks Credit Anstalt had picked up had actually misreported some losses on their loans. Losses that now became the responsibility of Credit Anstalt. This was really bad, because not only did the bank hold most of the debt for Austrian industry, the bank had also bought up the stocks of their own clients, meaning that the bank was also a shareholder of many of their borrowers. The losses in loans turned out to only be part of the story, as the poor performance of industry as a whole also shrunk the value of assets the bank could have used to save itself. People panicked and started withdrawing their deposits from the bank, creating a run that closed the firm's doors and kicked off a round of currency flight from Austria. The government finally intervened at the end of May, purchasing credit on Stalt outright, in addition to the 64 commercial enterprises that the bank had a controlling stake in. 
the collapse in Austria then spread to Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Yugoslavia, Romania, and Bulgaria. All these nations saw their banking sectors collapsed, and they followed Austria in instituting exchange controls. Exchange controls were a means to stay on the gold standard without suffering its ill consequences. They're exactly what they sound like. A layer of regulations where a nation uh, creates certain conditions for allowing the movement of money, including gold, into and out of a country. These rules were applied on a country-by-country basis, they created a lot of extra legwork to manage, and added a nationalist element to international commerce. Instead of managed and cooperative initiatives to jointly tackle the crisis, everybody was going all out for themselves. And all this panic naturally spread to Germany, and bank runs started happening there as well, further weakening confidence. Foreign banks had shifted to providing the Germans with short-term loans and promptly wound those down, worsening the credit crunch still more. The German government made a show about remaining on the gold standard, but without announcing it to anyone, changed the ratio of gold to the printed money supply from gold matching 40% of the money supply, like in the U.S., to just 10%. This created an inflationary effect without technically leaving the standard, a tactic that was adopted across Central Europe. Unfortunately, by the time this and other measures were implemented, the German banking sector had collapsed, taking the industrial one with it. I'm not going to labor over the German crisis on this episode, mostly because the next miniseries is going to be all about it, but this was effectively the end of the Weimar Republic. It had never been a popular state, and every segment of society had their own reasons for hating it. Its ineffectualness during every crisis of the 20s meant it had no champions, and the onset of the Depression didn't change that. Industrial output by 1932 had been halved, and unemployment was out of control. It is no coincidence that an outsider party demanding drastic action saw its breakthrough during that year. Italy provides a somewhat fun counterexample to all this chaos and misery. They too experienced a financial crisis, but somehow, someway, the fascist government managed to cover the whole thing up. When the country's top three banks started reporting to the fascists that they were in difficulty, the response from the government was providing secret loans. These were arranged in small meetings of only a few people that were kept on a need-to-know basis. Even the governing bodies of the banks themselves were unaware that these arrangements were being made. While completely underhanded, these tactics did prevent a panic, and eventually Mussolini allowed for a department to be set up to provide liquidity to banks directly. All of these various measures to combat the Depression were done on a nation-by-nation basis and served to destroy the stability that the shared gold standard system had offered. You had nations like Britain and Japan that jumped ship completely. You had nations like Germany gaming the system and partially being off the standard, others implementing currency controls, and those like the U.S. and France that stuck by the system. This effectively created separate currency blocks, with, for example, those last two nations I mentioned forming the core of the gold block. But there were others like the UK that led the way on creating what was termed the sterling block. Britain may have been an imperial behemoth in decline, but its empire still represented a gargantuan chunk of the world economy. And while the dominions weren't totally in their mother country's thrall, nations like Australia, New Zealand, and Canada did follow its lead. The sterling block was straightforward. If you did a lot of business through the British Empire, it could make sense to peg your domestic currency not to gold, but to the British pound sterling. The reason was, if a lot of your trade went through London, you already had a lot of pounds on hand, whose value was falling. Meanwhile, yours was getting strong by comparison, thus making exports to the UK less feasible. 
setting your own country's value and abundance to the pound would prevent this from happening as its value would always correspond. This group would come to include the Scandinavians, Portugal, uh, nations in the Balkans, as well as the Middle Eastern dependencies of the UK, and finally some South American nations including Argentina. It's interesting to note that while the UK was completely in favor of nations being part of this club, it was an informal one. There were no central agreements, no organizations to join, the UK itself didn't act as a leader. It was just an informal arrangement you could leave and join as it suited you. On top of this, the UK also implemented a system of imperial preference after the Ottawa Economic Conference that was held in July and August 1932. That imperial conference led to an agreement between the UK and its dominions to create an internal network covering the entire British Empire. Within the network, tariffs would be kept low, while among outsiders, they would remain high. It was to deliberately encourage economic activity within the empire and discourage it from the outside. This did create a whole host of countries who now had much more competitive currencies for exporting goods, while those who remained on the gold standard maintained strong currencies that made exporting difficult. This was the situation France found itself in, as it was still committed wholeheartedly to the standard. Their response to the British was throwing up the tariff wall to even the playing field. If the pound's deprecated value meant British goods were cheaper, then the tariffs would make up the difference to make those goods expensive enough to give French consumers pause. And as I mentioned earlier, this idea spread all across Europe like wildfire. Suddenly, everybody was putting up tariffs on everything. Europe turned into an us-versus-them economic free-for-all. It wasn't quite so simple as everybody versus everybody, though, as the implementation of tariffs at a large scale also created a political opportunity to show who your friends were by carving out exceptions to those tariffs. Already in May 1931, the Little Entente nations of Central Europe had all concluded favorable trade agreements between each other, and in January 1932, France began extending favorable terms to the nations of Central Europe as, you know, they were strategic allies in containing Germany. This in turn alarmed the Germans, as they had hoped to get their hooks into the Balkan states before the Depression had set in. Even with the German economy in total shambles, some of the last economic and diplomatic moves of the Weimar Republic were canceling economic treaties with the West, and instead transferring favorable trade conditions to the nations to the Southeast. These policies would be picked up by the eventual Nazi government after 1933, and one of the ongoing stories of the 30s would be intense German-French competition for markets and economic influence in the region. So, how did all these developments affect the U.S. and cause a second wave of recession? Simply put, it was all about confidence. With the gold standard being broken beyond repair, the world's economy was in a period of realignment that nobody was prepared for. American depositors had been panicking off and on since the end of 1929, and now, in August 1931, it was the turn of foreign depositors in the U.S. With the European banks falling apart, they came to the conclusion that the same could happen in the U.S. as well. When the European banks started failing after repeated bank runs, the U.S. banks were right there with them. The holdings of American banks and checking accounts plunged, and banks once again had to grapple with how to provide liquidity when they themselves had less and less money on their books with which to loan with. It didn't help that all the debt loaned out to Europe was now effectively worthless. There just wasn't any money left over to pay the loans back. By the end of 1931, almost 2,300 American banks had gone under, almost twice as many as the year previous, and almost four times what a normal bad year was supposed to look like. Hoover, for his part, waffled on how to approach the situation. 
the circumstances in Europe provided him a scapegoat to blame for what was happening in the U.S. True, the crisis had been going on since the end of 1929, but according to the wisdom of economists, the bottom had been reached by the start of 1931, and the recovery should have started that year. Then, the European banks fell apart and ruined what was supposed to be America's comeback. The persistence of the crisis, though, might have finally had an effect on Hoover. For the first part of 1931, he appeared to finally be coming around to the idea that deficit spending was going to be required. Perhaps showing an understanding of how serious the crisis was, he likened the situation to wartime, which allowed for the tight fiscal discipline he had been a champion of to be abandoned. This way of thinking wouldn't last long, though, as he very quickly retreated back into his economic conservative mindset. After Britain abandoned the gold center in September, yeah, he kind of went back into his shell. Spending could be permitted, but taxes would have to be increased to cover the burden. While this was eventually done in June 1932, the tax hike proved ineffectual as the tax base was in the process of being destroyed. The solution of following the British and abandoning the standard was not considered. Put off by what the British were doing, Hoover kept to his older economic orthodoxy and pointed out that currency not backed by gold would become a fluctuating mess that could hardly command the confidence of the markets. That this mentality was not only being challenged, but already being proved wrong by the end of the year, was not something that Hoover processed. Frustration also mounted with the Federal Reserve. That body was supposed to be keeping the financial system afloat, but was mostly standing off to the side. Hoover got so fed up that he convinced Congress to set up the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, or the RFC, in July. It was initially given $500 million, with an allowance for obtaining a total of $1.5 billion, raised through bonds backed by the government, to loan out to struggling banks. This was effectively what the Federal Reserve was supposed to be doing, but since they were declining to do so, another agency was specifically set up to do it. The RFC fell prey, though, to the same conservative mentality that so many other institutions did and kept strict rules to how the money could be loaned out and to who. Like what had happened with the Reserve, banks considered to have been mismanaged or not holding the right kinds of debt were ignored, despite the ones being in the most desperate conditions. Another flaw was that money loaned out had to be done so publicly, which meant that any bank taking the agency's money would be marked as one that might be going under in the near future and would create a, you know, a self-fulfilling bank run. While the RFC was an overall failure, it marked a watershed in the use of government power. Hoover had spent years shooting down more modest measures on the basis that it overextended the federal government. Now there was direct intervention that could be measured in the billions. Hoover's conservative high ground had been abandoned, and Republican orthodoxy stretching back to Harding was now in question. The RFC was denounced by progressives as catering to millionaires, but they took some heart in that large government programs were now seemingly possible. Programs that could be of more direct benefit to normal people, if put into place by the proper politicians. It wouldn't be Hoover to be the one to implement those. The disasters of 1931 effectively spelled the end of his administration, and he personally was way, way too set in his ways to change during an election year. Speaking of which, next week, we return the focus to the domestic U.S. as we close out the Hoover administration, cover the election of 1932, look at the devastating impacts of everything I've covered so far on day-to-day -day American life, and also the rise of FDR. So, join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.